I'm preaching one of those sermons that we're not going to get through today. How's it going? I prepared this much. We're going to get to about here. But that's okay. We'll start. Uh, we're heading back to the story uh, of a couple kings. In fact, over the next uh, few months, we're going to uh, be in a series called Good King, Bad King. And we're going to learn from these first two kings of the nation of Israel uh, here in the story of First Samuel. I like to teach about your Bibles even as I preach you your Bible. And so if, if you didn't know this, our Bibles are basically 66 books, um, uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Uh, they have different forms of literature. So you're holding, if you're holding your Bible, like a library uh, of the stories of God. Uh, over 2,000 years, the Bible's written uh, and collected and, and put together. And, and there's three principal forms of literature that our Bible exists in. Let me share them with you. The first one is prose. Everybody say prose. Like strike a, strike a prose. No, uh, anyway, it's stupid. Uh, that was in the last service. I apologize to everybody who had to listen to that. Okay, prose. Everybody understands prose? Uh, when we talk about prose, we're talking about like speeches or letters or, or essay-type form writings that are in our Bibles. Like we just got done with some prose. It was called the letter to the Philippians from Paul. And he just wrote some very direct, specific things uh, so that people can listen to a sequence of ideas or thoughts uh, being formed into one linear argument that requires our logical response. And so as we heed what Paul wrote to the Philippians, we apply what we find there in the lives that we live today. That's prose. About 24% of your Bible is this form of literature called prose. The next one's poetry. Everybody say poetry. Poems. Anybody like poems? Anybody write poems? I have a whole file of poems from when I was a senior in high school. You will never see them. Anyway, uh, uh, poetry, though, it's, we, we, we love our songs. We love uh, our rhymes or our, uh, you know, it's most of the wisdom books in the, in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Uh, uh, most of our prophetic books are filled with the poetry of God. Uh, God writes in these picturesque ways as he reveals himself. Through creative and dense language, he links images that help us see the world differently through his lens, through his eyes. Uh, about a third of your Bible is poetry. Uh, so you got po prose, you got poetry, and the last one is where we're going to find ourselves in this study uh, in a form of literature called narrative. It just tells the story. Uh, there's historical narrative, uh, narratives that are found in parables that Jesus tells, stories that he tells and others tell. There's biographical narratives like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your New Testament. Those are the Gospels, but they're all the narrative of Jesus' life just from different, different authors' perspectives. So about 43% of your Bible, almost half your Bible, is in this form of narrative where we compare ourselves to the characters in the stories and learn a lot about how to do this and not that. Isn't that what a lot of life is about? We look at other people and their stories, their experiences, and we're like, okay, I'm taking this, but I'm not going to do that. Right? That's how humans learn. Humans learn from the mistakes and successes of others. Anybody learn from someone else's mistakes? Anybody emulated someone else's successes? Yeah, that's kind of how we roll. I, uh, I remember, school kind of gets going, I remember uh, the first days of my third grade year. That was a billion years ago, it feels like. Uh, it was back before we had screens. Back then you had this big green wall in the classroom called the chalkboard. Does anybody remember the chalkboard? Like in my school, they just, 
they just wrapped around. They were just everywhere. Everything was a chalkboard. And uh, I, I, I especially remember like the, the brownies, we called them, the, the brown nose. That's horrible. You shouldn't say that as a pastor. But anyway, the, 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 the class mates that were really into being like the teacher's pets, their favorite job was what? Clapping out the erasers and wiping down the chalkboard. Maybe that was like punishment in your school. That was like the most prestigious position you could have in my third grade classroom. Uh, just so you know, I never attained that level. Uh, does that surprise anybody? Uh, in fact, I didn't like going to the board. Was anybody else like me? I sat in the back and don't ask me to go to the front. I don't want to go up to the board. I'm a fairly intelligent guy, uh, but you know, in third grade was not uh, eager to show what I didn't know, and that's almost what happened, almost always what happened. I'd walk in on a particular morning, the teacher had put, you know, like we'd be in long division. Everybody remember how to do long division? We'd be in long division, she'd have like three or four problems up there, and she knew I didn't like it, and so she'd always ask me first, Mark, would you like to come up and solve this problem? And uh, I'd always in my head be like, no. Uh, But uh, you couldn't say that back then, because they could spank you in those days. And so uh, uh, I walked dutifully to the front, right, and... uh, it could have been like a problem like this, uh, 498 divided by 6. Now, you all know the answer right away. It's 83. Everybody had that, right? But back in the day, you used to have to do that. Remember I'm talking about in long division? You got the 486 or whatever was here, and you got, or four, whatever, 493, and you got the 6 here. And, and, uh, uh, and, and so I'd start doing my, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe they don't do it that anyway anymore. Everybody's got a calculator on their phone. But back in the day, you know, you'd have to do long division. And I'd do it wrong. And I'd step back, hopefully, you know, hopefully seeing, uh, you know, eh? and, and the teacher would turn to the class because it's public ridicule time. Does everybody think that Mark's answer is right? And the whole class would be like, no. And then that kid who claps out the erasers at recess raises his hand and, you know, uh, Earl, would you like to come up? I'd never had a classmate named Earl. But anyway, uh, would you like to come up and correct Mark's work for him? Yeah, yeah. So here comes Earl, and he, you know, erases, you know, and, and, and puts the right answer up. And everybody cheers for Earl, and they make fun of me at recess and all that stuff. Fine. They learned how not to do long division <laughs> from me. And they learned how to do it from Earl. Uh, we're going to learn how to do life, um, how to do it from a good king. His name's David. Not perfect. Certainly later on, some mistakes are coming. But early days, David's pretty great. He, he, he lives in a way that, that most of us should seek to emulate. Uh, but as we've already been studying, there's a current king in Israel when David arises. Uh, his name's Saul. Saul's a bad king. Just not a whole lot uh, around his kingship that we could be like, do that. Most of it were like, hey, learn from his mistakes. Quick recap on 1 Samuel to this point. If you haven't been here when we studied it earlier in the year, uh, uh, Samuel's a prophet. Uh, He's also a priest. uh, And uh, for a time, he's like the judge of Israel. He's like the governor of Israel. They don't have a king yet, and so he kind of rules in a governmental sense. Uh, He's born to a woman. Her name's Hannah. Uh, This this lady had long prayed for a child of any kind uh, and then made a commitment to God in a prayer in the first chapter that if she was given a child, she would uh, give that child to his service in life. And, and that's exactly what happens. Uh, at an early age, Samuel is brought to the temple. He's given to a, uh, a character named Eli. He's the high priest of Israel. 
he's a hot mess, and he's uh, given birth to two, well, his wife did apparently, but uh, to two sons who are even hotter messes, like just dripping, oozing all over the place. And, and these guys are the best that the, the Jewish religion has to offer itself, and they're horrible. And so if you want to read, go back and read it, but uh, their story kind of unfolds, and all of them are dead by chapter four. <laughs> they're just all um, basically aced. And so Samuel rises to prominence, all right, there's some stuff in there about the Ark, don't have time, uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant. But, uh, uh, but we move forward in Samuel's leadership of Israel uh, to the time where uh, Israel decides, you know what, we want a king. Chapter 10, give us a king. We want a king. All the other nations have kings, we want a king. And what does God say to Israel? You got one. Who is it? If a pastor asks you a question, say God. Good, that's right, it's exactly right. God is their king. They don't need a king. They have a heavenly father, a heavenly king. They don't need some earthly agent. Samuel tells them that. They still say, no, we want an earthly one. And so God says, fine. Not in like a passive aggressive way, but he's like, okay, if you need to learn this lesson this way, here's your king. He's the tallest in all of Israel, plays center on the national basketball team. He's a fierce warrior, uh, but he is, uh, to say the least, a reluctant king. Like on his coronation day, he's hiding in the luggage department or compartment. Like it's literally in your Bibles that the king, the, the, the soon-to-be king of Israel is so afraid of the job that he hides, you know, with the carry-ons. Uh, but they pull him out and they put a crown on him and he starts and immediately begins to fail. Has a few high points but immediately begins to fail as a king and fails his way forward uh, to the point where in chapter 13, um, he's kind of out over his skis a little bit in his leadership, and he says, you know what, uh, I know that every battle we've ever gone into, God has uh, been honored with sacrifices by the prophet Samuel. I know he told me he'd be here at a certain time today, uh, but I know when it's best to fight our enemy, and, and I don't see him coming, and so what I'm going to do is so that God get what's, gets what he needs from us, is I'm gonna take the place of Samuel, and I will make these sacrifices on behalf of the prophet, and then we will move forward in battle, and we will uh, win. And Samuel gets there uh, uh, at the time he said he would uh, and asks Saul, hey, what have you done? And Saul says, well, I went ahead and did this. I went ahead and did your job for you. And this is what Samuel says to the king of Israel. In verse 13 of chapter 13, he says to Saul, you have done what? Foolishly, you're an idiot. He calls the most powerful man in the government of Israel a, an idiot. You've acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which is going to be a problem for Saul moving forward. Wait till you read today. And uh, this command that he commanded you with, for when, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. If you had just waited and chosen well. He goes, but now, verse 14, uh, now your kingdom shall not continue. You're going to be a one-off, Saul. This is, this is the only member of your, you are the only member of your family who will sit on this throne. Uh, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. What's his name? Don't say God. David. You're right, David. Yeah. Uh, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. This guy, David, he's coming in chapter 16. Stay tuned. Uh, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so here we are. Saul is on the way down. David is on the way up. We have things to learn from his mistakes and things to learn from his successes. Good king, bad king.
off we go. As we start, I told you it's going to be this much of our sermon today. We'll get to the rest. Don't worry about it. Uh, but uh, the four things that we're going to eventually cover in our time together this week and next are these. First, we're going to uh, see a troubling command issued. We're going to talk about its implications for us theologically. Uh, we're going to see a partial obedience executed. Saul does most of what God commands, but not all. And we're going to see the implications of that. All right, we're going to watch a final straw be broken on the camel's back. Uh, God is completely done with Saul uh, moving forward. And, and then next week, we'll talk about uh, the deluded reaction of this king. He, he just doesn't understand, like uh, so many of us. We're just completely ignorant to what God truly wants and what he deserves in life. So lots of things for us to learn. Let's start with the first, the troubling command. So, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, starts like this. Samuel says to Saul, some point in his 40 years of reigning, uh, this is what occurred. Uh, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. A uh, little history lesson, Saul. I was here at the beginning. I knew you back when. I knew you when you were hiding in the luggage, okay? Um, God has worked through me in your leadership, so listen to me now. He says, now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. It's from him and not me. Thus says the Lord of the hosts, uh, verse, 12, or verse 2, uh, I have noted what Amalek uh, did to Israel in opposing them on, on the way when they came up out of Egypt. All right, if you're kind of dropping into the Bible for the first time, we've got to do a little research, a little history here. Um, the story he's talking about is about the nation of Israel. They used to be in Egypt down here, right? Uh, this was back in the time uh, when they were the slaves. They had gotten there uh, through the leadership of Joseph, one of the sons of uh, uh, Jacob. And, and, and now they had grown to a, you know, a million, maybe two million strong. They were the slave um, population of Egypt. And uh, they were being oppressed. And if you don't know the story of the Exodus, God calls this guy named Moses, great guy, uh, eventually. And uh, he, he comes into the story and God uses him to emancipate his, his descendants, his children, the, the descendants of Abraham. And they cross the Red Sea, right? And, and then they kind of wander around here in the wilderness for how long? 40 years, right? And, and, and during the time of their wandering, uh, nations that had inhabited that territory would attack them mercilessly. And one of them were the descendants of this guy named Amalek. And so uh, in Exodus chapter 17, God instructs Moses to tell his general, a guy named Joshua, to go and fight the Amalekites. And in that story, if you're familiar with the Bible, it's the story where if Moses held the staff of God above his head, uh, down in the battlefield, uh, uh, Joshua was having success in the fight against Amalek. But when Moses' arms got tired and the staff came down, then the battle would turn. And so uh, it's, it's this, I don't have time to preach it, but it's this great story of how Aaron and this other guy named Hur came up and basically held the arms of Moses in the air so that the victory could be experienced on the battleground. Don't have time to preach that, but that's that story. And it's after that victory over Amalek that God issues this decree in Exodus. In verse 14 of Exodus 17, uh, the Lord said to Moses, write this. Put it in writing. Like this isn't, you know, just kind of a soft command of mine, uh, a maybe command of mine. I want this to be legally binding. Write it down so that the record is clear. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua. Uh, he's going to succeed you as a leader of Israel, but here's my call. 
God says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Um, None of you has ever met an Amalekite. They have ceased to exist. Thus saith the Lord. What we have in uh, 1 Samuel 15 is the execution of this command issued some 400, maybe 450 years prior to what's happening in our text today. Uh, uh, God comes uh, to Samuel and says, tell Saul, it's time. We're wiping the Amalekites out. Here it comes. Verse 3 says this, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction, how much? All. Everything. All that they have. Do not spare them. But kill, here we go, here's the troubling part, kill the men, kill the women, kill the children, and kill the babies. And don't stop there. If they've got animals, kill all of them. Sheep, camel, ox, donkey. I don't want anything that was of the Amalekites to exist once you're done this fight. How are we doing? Troubling, uh, troubling command. Extra troubling for a lot of people who um, uh, have decided not to believe what our Bible says. This is one of their proof texts. How could a loving God ever command such a thing? The death of innocence. How can he do this? Uh, the, the Hebrew word for this kind of warfare was called harem. Um, It was a command that was only against certain peoples who would come under the Lord's most severe judgment. Three times it happens in your Old Testament. The first time harem happens, it's not a war, it's the flood. Familiar with that one? And only the descendants of Noah survived that judgment of the world. Now, God promised not to do that again. We're supposed to look at the rainbow and see that, but things change. But that was the flood. And then early uh, in the conquest of the promised land, one of the first cities to go down in the book of, uh, of Joshua is the city of Jericho. The Canaanites lived in Jericho. There was only one of them that survived. Her name was Rahab. But the rest of the city was put to the sword. Cherem was the command. Uh, and now the Amalekites. The wrath of God was to be poured out completely on this people. Uh, atheists like uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, he's a, a, a writer uh, for the atheist cause, and, and Christopher Hutchins, a journalist who uh, championed the, the same ideas, uh, say, look, th- th- there's no God like, th- how could a good God, um, you know, basically command ethnic cleansing? H- how is this un- unlike, uh, you know, Islamic jihad, where you're going to wipe out all the infidels? I mean, how are you not on par with those things? And it seems like a fair question, except... Um, it's not an ethnic question or cleansing, it's an, an ethic cleansing. It, it's, it's based on something that um, is universal throughout the writings of our scriptures, that God is pure and righteous and holy, and we are not. We're sinners, right? And, and his wrath, though a problem for some, uh, in, in our understanding of a righteous God who is perfect and holy, uh, and, and his uh, you know, dealings with those who are not, uh, it stands to, to reason that he would be harsh uh, when it comes to sin. That's why when we talk about salvation, uh, it's a true saving. We need to be saved from the penalties, the consequences of the sin that we're born into. Everybody gets that's why we call it salvation, right? 
It's because we're not just saved to a relationship with Jesus, which we are, but we are saved from a penalty that exists when sin was imputed to us through the first people. I love me some Christmas. Anybody like some Christmas? Not just because it's fun for families and all that stuff, but it's when we celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God who comes the first time to earth to bring grace and forgiveness and hope, right? That's why when he's hanging out with his friend Nicodemus, he says, God so loved the world that he gave me his only son so that whoever believes in me will not, what? Perish from their sin, but have everlasting life. He says, in the next verse, verse 17, this is what he says. He said, for God did not send me, his son, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be, say it with me, saved through him. Saved from what? Saved from the consequences, the penalty of sin. Listen, what's happening here in the story of 1 Samuel is what should happen to every person always because of sin. We should always receive the wrath, the judgment of a holy and righteous God. But because he loves us so much, he has made a way for us through his son, by grace, to be freed from sin. It's not a free gift. It is to us, but it cost our Savior his life. And it was the penalty paid by him that allows us, if we have faith in Jesus, to forgo the penalty that we deserve. I grew up hearing this message all the time. It was a little heavy in the angry Baptist churches that I was a part of, right? And, and so uh, we mostly preach grace around here because that's the age, the message that we live in. It's why Jesus, when he shows up at his synagogue in Luke chapter 4, in Nazareth, he, he, he's asked to read uh, the scroll for the day, and he chooses Isaiah 61, and he reads this about himself, uh, this prophecy of the Messiah, It says in Isaiah 61, this is what Jesus reads in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me me to bring good news to the who? That's why I'm here. First coming, grace, good news to the poor. What else? Uh, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Who's in? Who wants this guy? I do, right? Uh, uh, and, And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops there. And there's a conversation, you can read it, it's in Luke 4, doesn't go well, people are like, isn't this Joseph's son? Didn't he grow up just down the street? Whatever, he's not the Messiah. He's like, I am, see ya. Spoiler, Jesus is the Messiah. But uh, uh, he leaves out, did you know that he leaves out a portion of Isaiah 61, verses one and two? Would it surprise you to know what the next line of Isaiah 61 is? I'll share it with you. This is the part that he leaves out. I come to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus is going to do both. First coming, day of our Lord's favor. We're living in that age. If you're still kind of, you know, testing the waters and, you know, checking out all the religions to see which one works best for you, here's my encouragement to you. The clock's ticking. You have uh, the amount of time that you have left in your life to make a choice for Jesus because once you have chosen him not, then his second coming is not going to be good for you at all. Because if you fast forward in the Bible, 
uh, and go all the way to the back to a book called Revelation, kind of tough to understand at times, but certainly clear in its overall theme. Uh, at the end of time, stuff's going to be no bueno. That's Spanish for not good. It's not going to work out well for people who are without saving grace. Jesus is going to come back that second time, and guess what that day is about? The vengeance, the wrath of God against sin. People come to me all the time, ask me hard questions. It's like a pastor's job to try to figure this stuff out with y'all. And I wrestle with it, just so you know. But this one I've made peace with. Like, how do I reconcile the wrath of God? Uh, I'll tell you how I do it. First of all, I understand from what I've read about him and his word that he's holy, okay? I'm not. And holy doesn't mix with unholy. Perfection can't be in the presence of imperfection. Sin and God don't mix. First step. Second step, God's sovereign. He's not just holy, he's sovereign. He's the creator. We are the createds. We are his, not vice versa. And so what he decides to do with us is up to his will and his bidding, and as a holy and perfect God, even though he loves us and creates by grace a way for us to be reconnected to him in life, he is within his rights as our creator to exact his justice for our unrepented of sin. He's sovereign. He alone gives life, and he alone has the right to give death, which is the chief consequence of sin in existence. Third, uh, because of sin, we all face the wrath of God. In fact, the Bible talks about that a ton. In Romans, it tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Uh, uh, It tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one, that every one of us are born into Adam. And if we want to be free from the penalty of that birth, we have to be born again into the second Adam. His name is Jesus, and he alone gives us life a second time. Uh, this is really hard in the culture that we live in because we uh, have always thought this, but it's, it's becoming progressively more dominant in our thinking, our zeitgeist as a culture. We want everybody to win. I'm not saying you do, but most of the culture wants everybody to win. We don't want anybody to be wrong. And so we keep moving lines that God has drawn for us uh, to include as many people as possible, getting to the point in some Christian circles where they just say hell doesn't exist as all, God's going to save everybody in the end, which kind of just completely tears apart everything that is us. Does everybody understand that? Like, let's just all go home if that's the case. If there's nothing to be saved from, let's quit preaching salvation. But that's what the mindset of the world wants us to do. Everybody gets a trophy. Come on. Everybody wins. And nobody's wrong. We do that because we have this very strong sense of fair. Has anybody got a sense of fair out there? Well, that's not fair. Anybody ever said that? Well, that's not right. Says who? Well, says me. Well, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm me. Well, who do you really think you are? Well, I don't know. I think I'm me. Well, if God says this and you say this and you think God's not fair, who do you really think is God? In fact, here's what the, everybody knows that the Bible tells us that we're created in God's image. Everybody knows that? Do you know what we've been doing since sin came into the world? We've been trying to create God in our image. And we've subjected him to our sense of fair. And here's, listen, my kids do this, your kids might do this. Well, as soon as God aligns with what I think he should be, I'll start following him. And I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. So I'm praying that you come to your senses, extract your cranium, 
and figure out that God is God. Everybody look at me. We are not. And so we don't get to say what's fair. We don't get to draw the lines. We get to accept and understand that God is holy. He is sovereign. We are sinners, and we need saving. And by his grace, he has sent us his son. So there's the troubling command. Hard for us, but just emblematic of the right that God has as our righteous judge to have the say-so in any of our existence. And by his grace and through his love, he gives us a second chance. Is anybody grateful for that today? I am. I am. All right. If you have more questions about that, that's what email's for, msaunders at baylife.org. I'll do my best. Here we go. So the story moves forward in 1 Samuel 15. He says this. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in a place called Telaim. Uh, there was 200,000 men on foot from the other 11 uh, tribes of Israel, and then 10,000 that he mentioned specifically from the tribe of Judah, which again, we're at the blackboard. How many people total? 210,000. Someone get that one real quick? All right. So there's this massive army. It's what's going to be necessary uh, for them to be able to carry out the command of God. They, uh, in verse 5, uh, ascend or descend to the city of Am- Amalek, and they wait in this valley. Uh, b- before they do that, just so we can all understand that, that Saul up to this point is, is trying to be in step completely with the command of God. In fact, so much so that he goes to some descendants of a guy uh, who was the actual uh, father-in-law of uh, Moses himself, uh, a guy named Hobab. When I read that, I giggled. But he, Hobab was the father-in-law of Moses, and his descendants were the Kenites. And so these Kenites were kind of intermingled amongst the Amalekites living in the same kind of area. And so uh, Saul goes to the Kenites, knowing them uh, to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, given grace by God in, in different periods of the history of Israel. And so in verse uh, 5 it says, or 6 it says, uh, that Saul goes to the Kenites and he tells them, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites. Get out of here, lest uh, we destroy you with them. Uh, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. Some people say that God doesn't have any grace in the Old Testament, it's all wrath. No, this is, this is an instance of God's grace. The Kenites didn't deserve anything, but uh, uh, Saul was impressed upon by God to make sure the Kenites got out of there and they were spared what was about to happen to the Amalekites. So the Kenites departed from amongst the Amalekites. Uh, and, and then it just summarizes in verse 7 that Saul defeats the Amalekites from a place called Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. I find that so compelling that these Amalekites who had attacked 400 years before the Israelites coming out of Egypt were now defeated and chased all the way back to the lands where they originally attacked Israel. Uh, let's find out how things went in the actual uh, battle, which is where we'll get the partial obedience uh, that we're talking about this morning. It's all uh, in verse 8. He he takes the king Agag. Everybody say Agag. It's just fun to say over and over again. Agag, 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 Agag. It's just fun. Uh, He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Full stop. Wait a minute. Is that what God told him to do? Oh, we're, we're not off to a good start. Um, he keeps the king alive, uh, but then it says he devoted destruction to all the people at the edge of the sword. So one Amalekite remains. Um, why would he keep the king? There's no one else for him to rule or lead over. Um, if you don't understand ancient warfare, uh, that was the trophy, 
Like if I'm the general of this army, the king of this nation, and we soundly defeat you, I'm keeping you as like a trophy. In fact, Caesar, when he would come back to Rome after a conquest in the Roman Empire, he would ride in on a white horse last, and he would be trailing the generals of the army on ropes behind him as a symbol of his dominance over his enemy. So Saul's like, well, God won't won't be mad if I keep one. I mean, especially the king. Everybody knows, you know, that's the trophy that I got. Spoils of war. He didn't stop there, though. It says in verse 9 that Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best, here we go, of the what? Of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs. Wait a minute. Weren't the instructions ace the herds? But when it came time to ace the herds, you know what people started saying? Hey, man, this one looks really good. I mean, that's some good steak in there. I, I could really, our family could eat off of that for a while. So yeah, kill all the sickly looking ones. Now, that's what it goes on to say. We'll keep all the good ones and all that was despised and worthless. We'll devote those to destruction. But you see that little phrase there? It says, um, they, they kept the, the, the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. That's kind of a blanket. Everybody see that blanket there? So any spoil of war, whether it was you know, uh, gold or silver, um, uh, you know, the good animals, Israel basically starts walking around being like, uh, that dibs, mine, I'll take that. And the command of God, which was probably still ringing in the ears of Saul from Samuel, he's just like, okay, all right, no, I got a gag. You guys do your, you know, have fun. And all of a sudden, everything that was meant to be subjected to the wrath of God is spared. <sighs> True or false, partial obedience is disobedience. Okay, so we're all in church. I heard many of you answer that well. True. It is true. It's totally true. But we get out there on the day-to-day stuff, and what starts happening in our thinking? Same thing that happened with Saul and his army. Well, surely God, what, he's not going to be fussed out about this. And this is what, you've seen me do it before. Anybody ever seen me do this? Here you go, God. Here's like 70% of my life. Hey, I'm really, I'm a great Christian. I've been doing this a long time. 85 of my life. Here it is, Lord. Now the 15% is mine. It's what I do on my, but here you go. Grade me on a curve. Let's go. Confer your righteousness on me. I'm mostly good. Now we're going to find out what partial obedience ends up meaning in the life of Saul and Israel. We got all kinds of excuses, right? Sometimes when it's our partial obedience, we're like Saul. We're supposed to get rid of everything, but we keep some. We're supposed to do everything, and we do most, right? And we you know, have this idea, it'll be okay. But take that to other places in life. If you're suffering from cancer, which I know too many of us have or we've known someone that has, and the doctor says to you, okay, we've got to go in and we've got to get it out, There has never been a cancer patient that says, yeah, doc, I hear you, but you know what I'm thinking? Let's just get 80% of it. Let's just get most of the tumor, right? Just let's just roll the dice, 20%. How bad that, I mean, how bad could that be? Let's just leave a bit. No cancer patient ever said that, ever. Get it all out. We pray for those surgeries, don't you? Lord, we pray they find it all and it all comes out, right? Because we know that's good. But when it comes to the spiritual, 
It's like we don't see sin as the cancer that it is. And we say, all right, 80%. But I like these. This sin is fun. And it's not hurt. We've got all the excuses. It's not hurting anyone. No one else knows. This is my personal sin. It's not affecting my outcomes. So here's most, but keep 20% of the cancer in. Makes zero sense. But humans have been doing it since sin came into the world. Sometimes it has to do with amounts. Sometimes it has to do with our toleration limits. Has anybody got an up to here? Who's got an up to here? Anybody got an up to here? Anybody ever said that? I have had it. Say it with me. Up to here. And what do we mean? We'll tolerate as much as we can. We'll be like Saul. We'll be as patient as we possibly can. But when we reach our limits... Then all of a sudden, we're like, okay, that's it. I've done all I can. And Lord, I've tried to honor you in the ways that you've told me to, but I've had it up to here. Can I share with you? I don't know. I don't want to put a percentage on it. But almost all of the, the messes that I sit in my office and counsel marriages in or family relationships in or whatever mess in, it's almost always as a result of someone reaching their up to here. Like, I'll, I'll work with couples for Five weeks, and we'll, we'll build all of these good things into their relationship, and re- restoration will occur. And then in one sloppy exchange, uh, one of them will reach there up to here, and in five minutes, they'll undo five weeks of God's grace and, and healing in their lives with just one stupid statement, one injurious word, right? And all it took was getting them up to here, and the whole thing comes apart again. Oh, yeah, but Mark, that's just how I am. Yeah, I know. It's what God's trying to save you from, bozo. He's trying to help you get past how you were without him so that you can live as you're meant to with him. And stop this half-obedience. See the signals that God's given you. I'm talking to some of you right now, and you know exactly what's behind your back. Like, I did this, and you were like, I know, I know. All right, Mark, you got me. Oh, I know. Every time you do this, I think of, I think of this, and I know. And once again, the light on your dash is flashing, and you're going to blow right past it. My daughter calls me last night. Uh, you know, I'm sitting in my chair writing my sermon, and she's like, Dad, my tire's flat. I'm like, how long has the light been on on your desk? A while, but I was sure that I could make it. <laughs> Who's been there? Anybody been there? You know, uh, the engineers that made your cars have put all those lights up there for a reason. So that you would know, change your oil, fill your tires. There's a needle for your gas so that you know when you run out. Some of you don't know that. All of those things, intricately designed for your benefit, but they only help if you pay attention. So listen to me. Pay attention. If you've got it back here and you think this is enough, I want you to know God loves you still, but he wants it all. He wants every part of you submitted to him, moving in his direction, in the the area of his righteousness. All of it. And by his grace, he'll give you what you need to do it. Knock it off with this keeping the king 
and culling the herds. Knock it off by the grace of God. There's a final straw. <laughs> and I'm done. I'm, this is the last thing. I'm just going to barely mention this part. And then we'll pick up the rest next week. Isn't that great? I figured out preaching. Just stop when, you, when you're out of time. Just stop. <laughs> final straw. The word of the Lord comes to Samuel. Probably at nighttime. He's having a dream. That's what God usually talked to Sam. It's like when he talked to him when he was a little kid. Remember that story, Eli? You know, he, uh, Samuel's hearing from God in a dream, and he keeps going to Eli, and he's like, what do you want? And Eli's like, knock it off, go to bed, you're bothering me. And then finally the third time, Eli, the high priest of God, is like, oh, maybe God's talking to you. Better, better listen. Way to go, Eli, loser. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, probably at night, and this is what he says to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Okay, i got to do this really quick. But we've, we've dealt with the wrath of God and that problem. Let's talk about the regret of God. How can a, a perfect, all-knowing, uh, uh, sovereign God experience regret? Well, this is one of the personifications of God that kind of falls short. Have you ever experienced a regret? Anybody here regret anything? Yeah, you know why? Because you and I are stupid. Not in the worst senses of that, but we're just fallible. We don't know everything. And so, of course, there's been times in our lives when we thought we were doing the right thing and it turned out to be wrong. Anybody been there? And that's what our regret is rooted in. Bad choices. Uninformed decisions. God's impossible. It's impossible for God. He doesn't make bad choices, and he's super informed, completely informed in anything that he does. So here's the deal. Here's what you have to kind of wrestle with, and then I'll let you go. God, being all-knowing, knew when he... Uh, relented and, and chose to give Israel its own king, that everything was heading to this point. In fact, it was circled on his days. Anybody got some dates circled? Anybody going on vacation in the next few months? And you're like, mm, can't wait for that day. That's going to be a great day. And you're just kind of counting down the days. I'm not saying that God was counting down the days, but he certainly knew that this day was going to come where he was going to make this command about Amalek and that Saul was going to do, and God was going to be like, all right, just like I scheduled, he's done. And that's all I have time for. So come back next week and we'll continue from there. It's one of those Sundays. But can I leave you with this as we get ready to sing a song? Here's what I want to leave you with. First of all, be okay with God being God. Like I know we wrestle with trying to fit him into our thinking and, and into our understanding. You know what the Bible says about that? Your ways are not my ways. And I'm not saying just be flippant and like, God said it, I believe, that settles it, which is a great way to live life. But, but you can think, you can ask questions, but when you come to the end of the questions, don't be like, well, then now, I, now I, if God isn't fair like I think is fair, I can't believe in him. Don't do that. That makes you God. Just be like, Lord, I don't understand. Be like Job. Job loses everything in one day. And he's laying on the, the, the rubble of his life. And his wife tells him to go ahead and just commit suicide. You might as well. Everything's just, bleh. Way to go, honey. But you remember what Job says? Hey, man, naked I came into the world. Naked I shall return. I don't understand what's going on. But God gave me life. God will take my life. And his final words were, what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you don't understand, just, all right, I don't get this entirely. But blessed be the name of the Lord. He's holy He's sovereign. It's his say-so as our creator. The sooner we get to the point of just accepting that he's right and we're not, the easier faith becomes. 
The second thing is this. Can we knock this off, please, in life? I'm saying that to me. I know what mine are. Do you know what yours are back here? Partial obedience is disobedience. God's not shooting for a good batting average. (laughs) Be holy, the scriptures tell us, as I am holy in 1 Peter. So I'm not here to beat you up. Who's grateful for grace? Anybody here? Yeah, grateful for grace. But don't take advantage of the grace that was won for you on the cross by being flippant with your sin. Choose by the grace of God to move forward in life so that he gets the glory he deserves from you and from me. And I'll preach the rest next week. Let's let Darnisha lead us in a song of blessing. Stand with us as we sing.